God doesn't run from darkness, he meets us there. He doesn't run from darkness. He's not afraid of darkness. God meets us in the darkness. He doesn't just come to us when things are good. Listen, he comes to us 2,000 years ago when things are incredibly dark. I think that whenever we see the darkness of oppression and the darkness of evil, whenever we see this, and we see this everywhere right now, we can acknowledge that yes, yes, that is real, and yes, that is dark, but that is not the end of the story. Whenever we see the darkness of war, the darkness of poverty, political hostility, and racism, and like our own dysfunctions and our own darkness that, that just seems to always creep its head. Like we can acknowledge that that darkness is real. But what Christmas does to us is it fills us with hope as we remember that that's not the end of the story. That while there is darkness, that's not the end of the story. Listen to me right now, wherever, wherever you are at in your life, I, you need to catch this. In the middle of the darkness, God shows up. In the middle of the darkness, God shows up. Hey, Merry Christmas to you. Uh, it is that time of year, can you believe it? Uh, less than three weeks uh, away from Christmas morning. So uh, get on it if you haven't, you haven't gotten started. Uh, man, time has flown by. Um, just, uh, I love this time of year. I love the anticipation. Uh, I love the excitement that it creates. I love just the awareness uh, it even um, uh, creates for me just in my spirit as I, as I just remember how significant uh, Jesus really is to this season, how he is, uh, how significant he is to, to our lives. And so uh, pumped to just be able to kind of uh, jump into the, the, the Christmas season at this church. I really believe that it's going to be a time of, of hope, a time of, uh, of just uh, kind of reorienting our focus onto the things that matter the most. Amen? Amen. You may remember about a month ago, uh, we all had to set our clocks back uh, an hour uh, to accommodate for daylight savings time coming to an end. You guys all remember that? As, as I'm sure you know, if you've lived in Iowa for any length of time, each spring we have to set our clocks ahead an hour uh, to make better use of daylight. And so we do this by, by taking a, an hour of daylight from the morning and we move it to the evening, okay? And what this does is it stretches out our day. It, it gives us longer period of time with daylight. I think it was originally for the farmers to have longer time in the fields or whatever, but, but uh, this is what we do. We, we add an hour of daylight uh, to the evening. We steal it from the morning. Well, about, a, well, about a, a month ago, daylight savings time came to an official end. And uh, if you weren't aware of that, it's, it's probably why you've been early to some appointments over the last three weeks. Um, but daylight savings, right, comes, comes to an end. And, and what this means, the significance of this, is that this extra hour of daylight that we've gained uh, in, the, in the evening has now been moved back to the morning. And the result of this is that by 5 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock, it is pitch black outside, right? It is, it is incredibly dark outside. How many, how many of you have, like, found yourselves ready for bed so much earlier this time of year because of how dark it is outside, right? I mean, in, in, in our family, uh, it, it is common this, this time of year uh, and recently it's been common for, for someone in our family in the early evening to, to comment on just how dark it is outside. They'll say, can you believe how dark it is outside? Have you found yourself making comments like that uh, this time of year? It feels like it's 10 o'clock, but it's only 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock. Um, the, the, the positive, though, to this time of year, if you have little kids like, like we do, is that, is that uh, uh, we now have the upper hand when it comes to bedtime. 
So, so in the summer, our twins, who are five, uh, you know, they like to resist bedtime. Am I right? They, they, they like to resist it by borrowing the famous line uh, from the movie Frozen, and they'll say, well, the sun's awake, so I'm awake. Well, well, now that it's getting darker so much earlier, as parents, we get to win this power struggle. And we turn the script on them, and we're like, well, it's, it's dark out, it, or, or the, the, the sun's asleep, so now you're asleep. Right? That's, and so we get to kind of win this power struggle. Let me tell you, there's nothing, there's very few things that are more, uh, uh, I think, exciting and, and make me feel better than winning a power struggle with a five-year-old. You know, uh, it just makes me feel like, I, man, I won today, so the sun is asleep, so you are asleep. Get, get yourself to bed. Come on, how many of y'all, over the last month or so, you found yourself just noticing or commenting on how dark it is outside? A lot of us, right? Here's the thing, though. Darkness is a word that describes so much more than just a black sky or the absence of sunlight. Darkness is a word that we all know also describes the evil and the decay and everything that is wrong in our world. Darkness is a word that describes the racism that has always existed in the human story and that still impacts us today. Darkness is a word that describes the political idolatry that has jeopardized the Christian witness of so many. Darkness is a word that describes the hate, the, the hate and the division uh, that has sought to really destroy an entire way of life in this country. We've witnessed it over the last few years. Hatred, uh, um, darkness is a word that, that describes violence. It describes the, the violence of uh, you know, mass shootings uh, that have become so common, like the, ones we, the one we just saw this week happening in, in Michigan at that school. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's tragic. Darkness is a word that describes you know, the violence of, of, of using a vehicle to crash into a Christmas parade, uh, parade of people just a couple weeks ago in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Darkness is a word that describes the violence of war and the dehumanizing of people. It's a word that describes the progressive uh, cultural agendas that are trying to program us and especially our children. Darkness is a word that describes sickness and disease, and pandemics, and suffering. And so it's, it's, it's pretty easy. It doesn't take much effort at all for, for every single one of us to look around these days and see darkness. It doesn't take much effort for us to look around and see that there is something deeply wrong in our world. And yet, how many of y'all know that, that darkness is, isn't just something that exists like way out there? Darkness isn't just something that exists like far beyond, out there somewhere. Darkness is something that is much, much closer. Darkness is something that touches all of us. Am I right? My experience of, of being a pastor, I've had the, the privilege and the honor of being able to walk with people through some of the darkest moments of their lives. And um, what this has done is that it has like routinely reminded me of the firsthand experience that we all have with darkness. That there is darkness that we all must contend with. Darkness of broken relationships. Marriages that are unraveling and the handwriting's on the wall and without a miracle, the end is, is near. The darkness of parents who have come to the conclusion that the relationship they have with their son or their daughter is never going to be quite what they wished it would be, and they're either estranged or they're having to walk on eggshells to not rock the boat and cause all hell to break loose. 
it's heartbreaking, it's devastating, it's, it's tragic. I've, I've seen, as a pastor walking with people, I've seen the, the darkness of addictions, whether it's drug abuse, alcohol abuse, sexual addictions. I've probably seen more of, of, of addiction-type issues in the last few years of being a pastor than maybe any other time in, in my career. Uh, people self-medicating to numb the pain. I've seen the darkness of, of depression and anxiety and the prisons that that creates for so many people. I've seen the darkness of people um, experiencing broken dreams and missed expectations. You know, uh, thinking, hoping, believing that life was going to look a certain way, that maybe they'd be married by now or have kids by now or that life would, would go a certain way, have that, that job or life, you know, kind of be the picture of what they had in mind and it's not. And I've seen people walk through the darkness of that. I've seen people walk through the darkness of losing uh, jobs unexpectedly and the fear that that creates as the future is now incredibly dark for them. Maybe that's, that's you. Maybe that's been your story. I've seen people walk through the darkness of, of overwhelming financial struggle and the, the bondage that that has created for them. And then I've seen the deep, deep, deep grief. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the lives of, of people here in this church. I've seen it in the lives of people I've pastored. The deep grief that, that causes you to wonder, you know, how, how am I going to survive without that person you know, in, in my life? I've seen the darkness of that. And yet, and yet what's interesting to me is that in spite of all of this darkness that is beyond us, and all of this darkness that, that, that I would say is, is before us or sitting at our doorstep, we find ourselves in the midst of a season that has traditionally been described as the most wonderful time of year. And yet in my experience, it seems like this is the time of year where we are reminded more than ever of the problems we can't solve the, the, the people we can't control and the expectations we can't meet. If we're honest, calling this the most wonderful time of year, it, it seems a little bit like wishful thinking. It feels a little bit like pie in the sky. It, it feels like, like an avoidance of reality, am I right? And yet here, here's the thing, and you've got to catch this. If you're with me today, I want you to dial in. I want you to catch this. It's a huge thought for today. Here's the thing. Christmas isn't the most wonderful time of year because of what is happening Christmas is the most wonderful time of year because of what has happened. Listen, it's not the most wonderful time of year because everything in your life is going right. Everything's going perfect. Or, or because all of your prayers are being answered exactly the way you want them to be answered. Christmas is the most wonderful time of year because of what has happened. God has come to us. It's the most wonderful time of year because of what has happened and because of what will happen. God will come to us again. And it makes this time of year incredible. It fills us with hope. It causes everything to come into perspective. The darkness sort of, sort of come in, comes into perspective because as, as difficult or as dark as it might be, this is the time of year where we're reminded of the hope of Jesus and how he gets the last word and how he writes the final chapter. If you're taking notes this morning, look at this thought with me. Advent. This season we are in right now, this season of waiting and anticipating the arrival of Jesus is when we remember that pain, sorrow, tragedy, and darkness are not out of place at Christmas. It's when we remember that darkness belongs at Christmas because this is the precise reason for why Christmas came in the first place. 
can look at our lives, we look around, everything, everything, the headline news, we look at like the, the headline news in, in, in culture, in the world, and we look at the headline news in our life, and we can, we can feel this, this pain, this sorrow, this tragedy, this darkness, and just feel like, how do I even, how do I even approach like, like, a, like a happy season? How do I even approach a, a Christmas season when there's all of these things that are just feeling so heavy and so dark, and you've got to understand and remember that darkness actually belongs at Christmas because in the midst of darkness, God came. In the presence of great darkness, Jesus entered into the world. I wonder if we could go as far as to say that without darkness, there would be no need for Christmas. Tish Harrison Warren says this. She says, for Christians... Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth that light has come into darkness, but Advent bids us first to pause and to look with complete honesty at that darkness. And this, in my opinion, is essentially the message that the Apostle John is trying to communicate to us as he begins his gospel account of the life of Jesus. I want you to look with me at the first five verses of John's gospel. He writes this in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if you grew up in church like I did, or you've been around church for really any length of time, you probably know by now that at the beginning of the New Testament, there are four of what we call Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different books that give four different detailed eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. And what we know about the Gospels is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar, and John's Gospel is very different. Now, let, me, let me just kind of explain to you what I mean by that. Um, Matthew and, and Luke are the only two Gospels that give us any sort of detail about the, the birth of Jesus, the, the Christmas story that we celebrate this time of year. Mark, he actually bypasses the entire birth narrative of Jesus and begins his Gospel by talking about John the Baptist and you know, the earthly ministry of, of Jesus. Matthew and Luke, the only two, the only two Gospels that tell us anything about Jesus' birth. I mean, these are the only two books, the only two Gospels where we, we read about Mary and Joseph. We read about, you know, angels and shepherds and wise men and a big bright light and an innkeeper and all of that. And yet, what I find interesting is that this morning, as we begin our Christmas season together here in December, and we anticipate, you know, you know uh, celebrating on Christmas Eve as, as, as a church family, this morning we're not reading out of Matthew and we're not reading out of Luke. We're reading out of the Gospel of John, and it's, it's Christmas time. And so, so why, why would we do that? And, and I want to just tell you up front that what I'm going to do over the rest of our time together today is I'm going to try to explain to you why the Gospel of John and the way he opens his Gospel is so significant to the Christmas story and why it's so significant, not just to the Christmas story back then, but it's significant to your Christmas now, today. You see, John, unlike Matthew and unlike Luke, he doesn't give us a birth announcement when he begins to tell us about Jesus' life. He doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus like the other two gospel writers do. John gives us a completely different perspective when he begins 
his gospel. And part of what makes John's gospel so unique to me is that when John wrote this gospel, he was a very old man. In fact, in fact, most people believe that the Gospel of John was, was the last of the four Gospels to be written. And so what we know and understand about the origins of this Gospel is that John is a very old man and that he is the only disciple of Jesus who was still alive as he writes this book. And I don't know, I mean, I, I like to kind of just imagine a little bit, you know. Like, we don't know this for sure, but I, I just sort of imagine that as, as John is sort of sitting down to write this Gospel, that, 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 he, that, he, that he's thinking to himself, you know, I, I got uh, to write all of this down because I don't have much time. He recognizes, like, how, how old he is, that, that, that uh, you know, he's coming towards the end of his life. It's as if he's thinking, you know, I got I to gotta get these stories written down so that they're passed on to future generations. And what we, what we know about that is that in the book of Acts, John and the other apostles, they, they told these stories of Jesus over and over and over again. They told these stories hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times. Imagine if you were somebody who had sat at the feet of Jesus. Imagine if you were somebody who had known Jesus firsthand, who were a, was a friend of Jesus. Imagine how popular you would be with the Christians in the decades that would follow Jesus' ascension into heaven. Anywhere John went, anytime John went anywhere, Christians would, t- would say something like, tell us what it was like. We've heard the stories, we've heard People tell us the stories, but you were an eyewitness. We want to hear from you. And so John has told these stories many, many, many times. And in some ways, this is why he starts his gospel, I think, off this way. I think part of it's because of how old he is. Part of it, he's just like urgent. He's sensing the urgency. He's just trying to tell, you know, uh, you know, um, you know his, his version and with sort of a unique twist. But he's told these stories over and over again. And he's just wanting to like, I think, start with like, the significance of the Christmas story, not just the, the details of the Christmas story. Listen to me, like, like you got to understand, like the Apostle John, to understand the significance of how he starts this gospel. John is the person who reduces God to a single word. John is the person that sat back and he said, okay, okay let, me, let me make it like real simple for you. Let me make it real clear for you. God is, God is love. He reduces God down to a single word. And what's incredible to me about this is, is when I, I think about and realize everything that John lived through, everything that he experienced, and yet he still describes God this way. He reduces God down to the word love. And for us to really catch, I think, the importance and the significance of these first five verses, or even this first chapter of the Gospel of John, we have to like really consider what John lived through. Remember, like, he's a very, very old man. And he's experienced loss like you cannot even begin to imagine, no matter what your story is. Like, we can't even begin to imagine the things that the Apostle John lived through. He has lost friends. He has lost family members. The Apostle John, he was, he was boiled alive in hot oil. In fact, some of the, the extra-biblical uh, uh, accounts of this story where that he's, he's dipped in this boiling oil and nothing happens to him. Very similar to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, in the fiery furnace that like God evidently protects him. People are amazed, the story goes, that at what they see, that those who were watching give their lives to Jesus on the spot. Emperor is, is, is so uh, angry and upset that he, he decides he's, he can't do anything to John, so he's going to banish him to the island of Patmos for the rest of his life. John 
uh, or, or the emperor ends up passing away, and, and we believe that, that likely at the end of John's life, he's, he's released from the island of Patmos and spends the, the last several years of his life pastoring churches up and around the Mediterranean realm. John's been through an awful lot. He's experienced loss of friends, loss of family. He's nearly lost his whole society. He's nearly lost his entire culture. Let me explain to you what I mean. John was alive, if you didn't realize this, John was alive during the very first Jewish revolt against Rome, the first Jewish war. This, this happened in about 66 to 70 AD. And so Jesus, he, he, uh, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension was probably somewhere around like 32, 33 AD. So you're talking about like 30 to 40 years later, there is this war that breaks out between the Jews and the Romans because because there is this, this group of Jews that are just tired of the oppression from Rome. And so John, John is probably the youngest apostle. Okay, so he, he, and he, and he is the only one who doesn't die a martyr's death. And so he lives to an old, an old age. He probably lives somewhere into like 90, 95, 100 AD. So he's alive during the time of the first Jewish revolt against Rome when, when Nero sent Vespasian, the general, into Galilee. And Vespasian begins to work his way down through Galilee, rolling up all of these villages and all of these cities and slaughtering thousands and thousands of Jewish people and sending thousands and thousands of men, women, and children into the slave markets of Rome. Like John lived through that. John lived through the time when Vespasian went back to Rome to become the emperor after Nero died and leaves his son Titus in charge of the Roman soldiers there in Jerusalem with the assignment to conquer Jerusalem to take the city. And so Titus and his men, they surround the holy city of Jerusalem for seven months, unable to breach the outer walls of the city. And so every day for seven months, there would be Jewish men and women who would try to escape the city because they are surrounded by Roman soldiers and you know they're just, they're just aware that the end of their life is coming soon. And so for seven months, Men and women, children, they would, they would try to escape the city by climbing the wall. They'd be captured by Rome, and every day for seven months, the Roman soldiers would crucify 500 Jewish men, women, and children waiting for the Jews to give up the city. John lived through that. The story goes on that the Romans struggled to penetrate the three outer walls of Jerusalem for seven months. Seven months, so they began to cut off the food supply, and People began to starve to death. Plagues broke out. The Roman army dug a ditch around the city uh, walls and then built their own, their own walls made of dirt to be taller than the, the, the walls of Jerusalem. And this was their attempted effort to get inside the city. Eventually, Titus is successful in breaking through the Jerusalem walls. And his men are so angry because it's taken them months and months and months to finally breach the city that that in their anger and their hatred towards the Jews, they burned the city to the ground. John lived through that. He lived through that. Now, John was either there at the time or he at least heard the story because he's alive when this happens. He's alive when the Roman soldiers, in their anger, in their mockery of God and the Jewish people, burn the temple to the ground in about 72 AD, right here in this story. He's alive when the Roman soldiers took the sacred items from the temple that only the high priest had ever seen. 
items like the menorah or the, the table of the bread of the presence of God, and they paraded these items around the city in front of the Jewish people, items that they had never seen before. Let me show you this, this picture. You can uh, go back one to, uh, to this one. Yeah, this is, this is the arch, an arch that is in Rome today. It's, it's called the Arch of Titus. And this, this arch commemorates the victory of Titus and the Roman soldiers at Jerusalem uh, against, against the Jews when the Jews revolted against Rome around 66 to 70 some A.D. Inside of this arch, on the inside, you can see there's, there's like a lot of detail. Here's this picture. Look at this. This is, um, yeah, you can go back to that next, that, yeah, this is inside of the arch is a, is, is a depiction of the Roman soldiers parading the items from the temple around the city streets of Jerusalem. So you see the menorah on their shoulders. And then over, over to the, the right is, is, is the, uh, their, their drawing, their depiction of the table of the bread of the presence of God, which was in the temple. I mean, this is probably the only, the closest thing we have to an actual picture of what that thing looked like. And this is a complete mockery. They've defiled the temple. They've burned it to the ground. At the end of the Jewish war, around 72 AD, when the temple is destroyed, over a million Jews had been slaughtered. Over 100,000 were taken from the city of Jerusalem for the purpose of resupplying the Roman slave markets. John lived through that. By the time John writes his gospel, his friend Peter has been executed and his friend Paul has been executed by Nero. John has lived through unbelievable loss and unbelievable tragedy. He has seen Rome just nearly annihilate and wipe out everything he loved and everything he knew. And what's so amazing to me about John is that through all of that bloodshed, through all of that loss, and through all of that chaos that we can't even begin to imagine, he, he doesn't lose his faith. And in fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, here, here's what John writes. This is, this is the final verse of the Gospel of John. John chapter 21, verse 25, it says this. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. In other words, what John is saying, he's saying, I, I've just given you a taste. Like everything you've just read in these 21 chapters, like I, I've just given you a taste of what we saw in this person, Jesus, when we were around him and when we, when we saw him do unbelievable things. And then if you, if you read this gospel, what you find is the chapter prior to this, chapter 20, is where John says, but these are written to you so that you may believe. Like in other words, I've written all of these things so that you May believe. In other words, the reason I'm even writing this gospel, the reason I'm, I'm leaving this with you is I'm hoping that after you read this account of Jesus' life, you won't just simply be impressed. You won't just simply be amazed. But I'm writing this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life and a different kind of life than, than this physical life. And this is why, as he starts his gospel, John chapter 1, Verse 4 is so amazing to me when he says this. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now remember, he's an old man, and he's lived through so much. And he says this to those who would listen and read. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Think about this. In spite of everything that John had experienced, at the end of his life, and the destruction of everything that he had loved, 
everything that was important to him, the loss of just about everyone he knew and loved. John, at the end of his life, still believes. He still believes that Jesus was the source of some, some kind of life that went beyond the physical life. And so when John begins his gospel, what's unique about it is that he does not begin with the birth narrative. As you might expect someone would do as they're writing you know, a, 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 a story about the life of an individual, you would think they would start at the beginning and move on from there. And it's, it's actually unbelievably fascinating for me when I think about you know, how John started this gospel and why he didn't include the birth narrative. Because if you remember, when Jesus was crucified and he's hanging on the cross, he, he, he looks at Jesus, or he looks at John, and what does he say? He says, take Mary, my mother, as your mother. And then he, he, he looks at Mary and he says, take John, and I want you to view him as your son. This is the interaction between Jesus, Mary, and John from the cross. And so we don't actually know how much time John and Mary spent together, but we do know that they, they, they spent quite a bit together, and they viewed each other as family there's a lot of people who believe that, that they, uh, they left and went to Ephesus and that John took care of Mary in Ephesus until she died. But what we, what we do know, so there's a lot that we don't know, what we do know is they spent quite a bit of time together viewing each other as family and that John took care, care of Mary up until she died. And so it is reasonable to assume because of this that like any mother would do, John heard over and over and over firsthand from Mary the entire birth narrative, right? Like any mom, John would have heard firsthand from her own mouth the entire birth narrative. And if anybody had the opportunity to say, hey, Mary, tell me what it was like one more time. Tell me what it was like when you, when you first learned you were pregnant. What was it like? When, when the angel spoke to you? Tell me what it was like when you, when you gave birth to the Son of God. What is it like to know that? I mean, he must have heard this stuff many times, over and over and over again. And yet when John begins his gospel, he doesn't begin with shepherds. He doesn't begin with wise men. He doesn't begin with a manger. He doesn't begin with Egypt. He doesn't begin with Herod and the slaughter of young boys in Bethlehem. He begins not with the... the the story of the birth of Jesus. John begins, if you're taking notes, with the significance of the birth of Jesus. John explains to us what the birth of Jesus meant then and what it means now. And he tells us this in, 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 in verse, verses 3, 4, and 5 in, in, uh, in his gospel. He says, Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then he says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a couple things here in these, in these few verses I want to just, just highlight briefly, and, and that, is, um, that is that in verse 4 it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. What's interesting about this is that the light wasn't a Jewish light. It was a light for all mankind. And this, this would have been revolutionary. This would have blown people's minds. Because in, this was the Jewish Messiah. In their minds, the Messiah was coming for them. And that this was, this was, this was exclusive to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. 
And John is declaring that this light wasn't just a Jewish light, but that it was a light for all mankind. And then, and then if you notice throughout this entire, if you put those verses back on for, for a moment, if you notice throughout these three verses, that, that as, you, as you read verses three and four, it's all past tense. Through him, all things were made. With, without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, past tense. And that life was the light of all mankind. And then John, immediately in verse five, he begins to change the literary flow. And he says the light shines. It's present tense. He doesn't say the light did shine, the light has shined. He says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light still shines now. I want you to look at what Isaiah says as he prophesies about the birth of the Messiah 700 years before it happens. Isaiah 9, chapter 2, he says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is prophetic about what the world would look like when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes. That there will be people walking in darkness, and all of a sudden they will see a great light. That on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has finally dawned. And just like there were very, very, very dark days when John wrote this gospel, John was reminded that Jesus was born at a time when it was very, very, very dark as well. And when he sits down to write this gospel towards the end of his life, before he gets into all the stories, before he gets into all the miracles, before he starts to tell us about you know, the final week of Jesus' life and the crucifixion and the Last Supper and all that, here's what he said. And, and this is so extremely powerful because in, in a time of our lives and in a season of our lives when things can be incredibly dark. This is what John says, John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And then John 12, 46, Jesus actually says this. He's speaking and says this. He says, I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So sometimes we can look at the four gospel accounts and think that like, okay, you got Matthew, he tells us about Jesus' birth. Uh, Mark, he just sort of skips out. Evidently he wasn't interested in, 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 in like, um, you know, babies and stuff. And then, and then, and then Luke, Luke gives us the, the you know, the more, more detail about, about the, uh, the birth of Jesus. And then, and, then, and then John just does his own thing and doesn't talk at all. But you'd be mistaken because, man, man, John opens his gospel telling us all about the birth of Jesus, just not the story. He tells us about the significance of it. That Jesus came into the world as a light so that no one who believes in him should stay in darkness any longer. Here's what, here's what John is saying if you're taking notes today. Here's, here's a, like, a, like a big, big thought. Christianity doesn't promise that when you come to Jesus, you won't experience darkness. It promises that though you experience darkness, Jesus still comes to you. Jesus still comes to you. Again, Isaiah 9-2. If we go back to it for a moment, Isaiah writes and he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, I've read this verse. I mean, I, mean, I can't even count, right? This is, this is like a famous Christmas scripture, Christmas chapter, and I read it this year, and something like jumped out to me different than, than any other time. I specifically noticed the shadow of death. 
And that, and that Isaiah says that in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And it, it immediately reminded me of, of one of the most famous psalms we have, Psalm 23, where King David writes in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's like similar language here. Like Isaiah says, in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you're with me. And I just, I just had this, this thought. It just, it just like hit me as I'm, as I'm you know, working on my message at this you know, coffee shop in Waukee this week. I'm, I'm, I, it, just, it just hit me that God doesn't run from darkness. He meets us there. He doesn't run from darkness. He's not afraid of darkness. God meets us in the darkness. He doesn't just come to us when things are good. Listen, he comes to us 2,000 years ago when things are incredibly dark. I mean, I, mean, I, I, could, I could have spent all morning talking to you about like, man, the, the type of oppression that the Jewish people had been under in the years leading up to Jesus' birth. We could have talked about the 400 years of, of silence where there had been actual, actually no interaction with God uh, and, and the Jewish people and how people were, were devastated and they started giving up on the prophecies that the Messiah would ever show up. He comes to us 2,000 years when things are incredibly dark. And so I think that whenever we see the darkness of oppression and the darkness of evil, whenever we see this, and we see this everywhere right now, we can acknowledge that yes, yes, that is real, and yes, that is dark, but that is not the end of the story. Whenever we see the darkness of war, the darkness of poverty, political hostility, and racism, and like our own dysfunctions and our own darkness that, that just seems to always creep its head, like we can acknowledge that that darkness is real. But what Christmas does to us is it fills us with hope as we remember that that's not the end of the story. That while there is darkness, that's not the end of the story. Listen to me right now. Wherever, wherever you are at in your life, I, you need to catch this. In the middle of the darkness, God shows up. In the middle of the darkness, God shows up. And I don't know what your darkness looks like. I don't know what your story has been. I know that, that really, really, you're either... You're either coming out of a season of darkness, you're in a season of darkness, or you're about to go into a season of darkness. That's usually how it is in life. And not to be pessimistic, but that's just usually how things go. And so we all are familiar with darkness, aren't we? And you got to hear the encouragement from you know, the scriptures today that in the middle of darkness, God shows up. He's not afraid of, 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 of your darkness. He's not afraid of how dark it gets. He meets us there in the middle of it. Listen to this, uh, look at this quote from Wendell Berry. It's very profound. He says, it gets darker and darker, and then Jesus is born. It gets darker and darker, and then Jesus is born. You see, we live in really the second advent. The first advent was 2,000 years ago, and, and 4,000 years ago, and 6,000 years ago, when they are waiting and waiting and waiting the arrival of the Messiah. And now we wait, similar to how they did, for the arrival of Jesus to come again. And it gets darker, and it gets darker, and then Jesus comes. In Luke's gospel, Luke opens up in Luke chapter one, and he opens up by telling us a story about another baby that would be born, another miracle baby. He opens up by telling us the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Elizabeth's really miraculous pregnancy with John the Baptist. 
And in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 76, we see um, Zechariah writing about his son. And like the miracle of this son and the son that they had waited. And, you know, you think of the shame that they had endured for so long because they couldn't have a child. And Zechariah is this priest in the temple and he writes these words to his son. And, and uh, it's affectionately a portion of scripture that we call Zechariah's song. And he says this to, to his son. He says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, which we know John the Baptist was, right? The greatest prophet of all. He says, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. This is talking about Jesus, okay? And uh, in the next verse, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And so he says, because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. You know, everyone, everyone understands what it really means for light to shine in darkness. Everyone, everyone you know, pretty much understands what it's like for, for light to expose what is in the darkness. You flip the switch, everything is seen. You turn the switch off and everything is hidden, right? So we, we get it, we comprehend the metaphor here. But this light, this light of Jesus, it shines in the darkness. And it's as if the darkness, as hard as it has tried to put it out, to snuff it out, to overwhelm it, to seize it, to imprison it, to surround it, to understand it, as hard as it seems the world and our culture has tried to blow out this light John says this, he says, the darkness has not overcome it, and this light is the light of all mankind. Think about this. John is an old man who has gotten the news that Peter has been executed, that Paul has been executed, and he is likely the, the last remaining apostle still alive in his old age. And if you could imagine this, again, imagine John writing this with a grin on his face. That in spite of everything this world has tried to do to eradicate the light that is life, the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overwhelmed it. There's like still this grin on his face at the end of his life. And he's saying, look, like it's, it's the light of life. It still works. The darkness has not put it out. John's telling us that Herod couldn't do it, that Pilate couldn't do it, that Nero couldn't do it, that Vespasian and Titus couldn't do it, that the destruction of the temple couldn't do it, couldn't put out this light. John is saying, if you're taking notes, that a light still shines. A light still shines. A light still shines, church. He's saying that the light didn't just shine you know, 30, 40 years ago when Jesus came and now we've experienced all this darkness and there's no hope. He's telling these people really at the end of their civilization for 2,000 years until 1948 when Israel became a state again. They were wandering, they were nomadic, they were dispersed. He's telling them when all of that took place and they had no idea that 2,000 years was gonna go by before they'd have their own land again. He is saying that a light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He is saying the light is still shining and it's a message that was true then and it's a message that is true now 
that no matter what you're facing and walking through, no matter what the story is around your life, no matter what the story is that surrounds you in this moment, a light still shines in the darkness. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. And nothing can put that light out. John is telling us to lift our eyes off of our circumstances and to just watch the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that gives us hope. To just watch and see. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God. He references back to 2,000 years ago on that night when light shined in the darkness. It was the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in a world that was hopeless. And I want to just encourage you today that, that whatever it is, whatever the story is, that as you lift your eyes off of your circumstance and on to the light that is life, watch and see the kingdom of God break into your, to your, to your life. Watch it break in. Watch it fill you with hope. John was absolutely convinced that no matter what happens in this life, and no matter what we face in this life, and no matter how, how deep the heartache, and no matter how extreme the fear, and no matter how deep the depression, that there is light that still shines in the face of darkness, that there is no, no amount of darkness, there is no type of darkness that can put it out. Amen? One more, one more slide for you. At Christmas, when we're confronted with the fact that there are so many problems we cannot solve, we are reminded in the midst of all the darkness around us that Jesus is the light of mankind who overcomes darkness. We're reminded that there is always hope. Again, taking you back to close to the beginning, what makes this the most wonderful time of year is not what is happening. What makes this the most wonderful time of year is what has happened. That when our Heavenly Father sent His Son into this world. It's the most wonderful time of year because as John says, in Him was the light of all mankind and that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Not then, not now, and not ever. Amen. Would you stand with me here? this morning. Hmm. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Holy Spirit, just come. Holy Spirit, pray you just speak to us right now. If you're here today and you would just, you would just acknowledge that there are some dark things that you're experiencing right now and you are in need of the light of life that gives light to all mankind. Can I, just, can I just see your hand? I mean, everybody's, everybody's just, just head bowed. I mean, this is you and Jesus. You just need, need to experience the light of Jesus shining bright in the dark areas of your life. Father, I just thank you for those in here right now who are, who are willing and able to, to just acknowledge where there is darkness in their life. And I pray, God, you'd light it up on them right now. I pray you'd light up their life in Jesus' name. I pray for a hope where things have seemed so dark and things have seemed so difficult, where the, the, the final chapter seemed to have been written. God, I thank you that in the midst of all of this darkness, God, you still show up. And I ask in Jesus' name, Father, that you would begin to show up in every person's life right now who has their, their hands raised. Every person who is experiencing brokenness and heartache, challenge after challenge. Lord, the, 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 uh, the discouragement of their soul. Lord, I pray that you would show up 
in their life right now that they would feel and experience the love of Almighty God just colliding with the hopelessness. I pray that the light of the gospel of the glory of God would collide right now with the hopelessness that exists deep inside. And I pray, Lord, that you would lift every head. You would lift every head right now. I pray that we would, we would recognize today that, it, that, in, that in the midst of so much darkness, the light shines and that the darkness has not overcome it. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen.